Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Lost in Science for another week. So good to have you with us for the next half hour of science on your radio. And this week on the show, we have a special guest for you, Craig Hardner, who is a macadamia expert. A macadamia nut expert, he yes. He is. Yeah. And he's going to be taking us through some of the new research that has come out looking at the genetics of macadamias and how they are all much more related than we think. Yeah, because they, I think they initially came out of Queensland, didn't they? And then they were... They are. They, they were are like endemic. They in Hawaii. Yeah. But assuming that um, Craig Hardner from the University of Queensland is tracing it back to where it came from in Queensland itself. Indeed. Yes. Indeed. And Chris, what do you have for us on the show today? Well, last week, I believe Stu gave us uh, an obituary of a, a scientist, and now I'm looking at another recent departed scientist. This one is not an Australian one. This is um, a famous, a well-known theoretical physicist who you probably haven't heard of, uh, Murray Gell-Mann. Gell-Mann. Who, yeah. He, um, he gave Gell-Mann. Us, he gave us quarks, or quarks, or however you want to you pronounce it, the, the fundamental particles that make up the nucleus, Make out the protons and neutrons. So I'm going to have quark a bit man. of a look. Yeah, he is he is quark man or quark man. He was his preferred pronunciation. So in his honour, we're going to call them quarks. But um, yeah, I'm going to talk about what quarks are. So basically, the fundamental structure of the universe. This guy gave us the deepest structure of the universe that we know of reliably. Wow, so that is pretty something. You know, that is a significant thing, not to be sneezed at. That is a great science obituary. Well, yeah. stay tuned for that. And Macamadamias on with the show. So as far as uh, Australian native foods go, probably the best known product from Australia is the macadamia nut. And probably the majority of macadamia nuts in the world don't come from Australia. I've got on the line with me Craig Hardner from the University of Queensland, who's something of a macadamia expert, to ask him about some research that they've been doing into macadamia production and uh, where the macadamias in the world do come from. Craig, thanks for joining us on Lost in Science. Yeah, pleasure, Stuart. Thanks for the interest. Where do the macadamias in the world get grown? So macadamias are grown in subtropical tropical regions of the world. There's probably about uh, 30% come f- are produced by Australia at the moment, and that's around the same amount that's produced in South Africa. Uh, probably next is Hawaii uh, and China is developing as a large uh, producer uh, in the next five years. Uh, and then there's places like Kenya, uh, Malawi, Guatemala are also producers of macadamia. So how did we end up with a situation where other countries are growing our, you know, our, our prime export uh, bush food? Sure. Look, there's um, really interesting stories about the development of macadamia, and macadamia was first described by European botanists in the middle of the 19th century. 
Uh, macadamia grows in the subtropical forests of southeast Queensland, northern New South Wales, and it, was, uh, it wasn't until Queensland was really opened up for free settlement that uh, botanists came through Queensland, and macadamia was one, of, was one of the plants they discovered. And whether it was through interaction with local Indigenous people that, you know, there is some evidence that uh, Indigenous um, uh, first people had uh, consumed macadamias as part of their diet, um, or whether it was through self-discovery by the Europeans, but around the sort of around the um, mid 19th century, Europeans became aware of uh, the delicacy of macadamia, and it's probably because they were botanists. They were sent around the world, uh, and there was some that was actually taken by a um, an Irish immigrant that then went to Hawaii uh, in right at the very end of the 19th century. And then Hawaii, in the early 20th century, uh, found the de uh, observed the delicacy of macadamias. And in the 1920s, they really started up the first large commercial production of macadamia. And so that's where the industry sort of started on a, on a, as a commercial commercial industry. And then through through the 50s, it grew in Hawaii. And then from the 70s to the 90s, it's grown in Australia and South Africa. And now. Um, because there's quite a large market in uh, throughout the world, a large number of countries produce macadamia. So it is a subtropical plant. Is is that a limitation on where it can be grown? Is it mostly grown in the tropics? Yeah, sure. Um, as I mentioned, the the countries that grow it are subtropical, uh, tropical uh, country uh, climates. Uh, I know that it grows down in Melbourne. Uh, there's a tree in the St Kilda Botanic Gardens and there's a tree in the um, uh, Royal Botanic Gardens in Melbourne. So, it, you know, it grows in temperate environments, but it's not, it doesn't really produce until you get subtropics and tropics. And then once you start getting into the, um, the uh, I guess, the, the harsher tropics, uh, like on the, the lowland uh, up above Rockhampton or, or Cairns area... Then uh, the the high minimum temperatures are probably the uh, factors that are um, uh, probably the factors that are inhibiting the production of macadamia in those areas. Okay, does that does that affect pollination and that sort of thing? Look, I think it's more probably the uh, actual the initiation of the flower. So uh, a lot of um, crops require cooler temperatures to initiate flowers or they require uh, some, uh, from my understanding, and my, I'm more a geneticist than a horticulturalist or a botanist um, but, or a physiologist, but from my understanding they require some cooler temperatures or even um, uh, high production of carbohydrates, which in, the, in stressful environments uh, there's not as high production of carbohydrates. So it's just that I mean, basically, they don't grow very well in in, uh, in environments that have very high temperatures, and they also don't grow very well where there's frost. So that sort of gives you a fairly reasonable band where macadamias may grow. Okay, so this is also assuming, speaking of genetics, that um, you know the the plants that people are growing all around the world are of similar uh, genetic makeup. They're they're probably selected for their ability to produce in the places where they're grown. So 
what what's the what's the genetic variation like in the in the actual commercial crops compared to say the actual wild plants uh, up around um, northern parts of Australia? It's a very good question, Stuart, and I mean it taps into the recent research that we have published. Uh, I was describing how macadamia was developed initially in Hawaii in the uh, early 20th century as a commercial crop, and that really came from a small um, sample of seeds that were introduced into Hawaii. And we, we, the historical record suggests there's about six trees that grew from those seeds. So some of our work was to try and trace the wild origin of those seeds where they could be traced back to. So as, as I was saying, macadamias were only really discovered by Europeans in the mid-19th century, so, and they're a tree crop. So there's been not very many generations of breeding of macadamia compared to something like peach, which has got thousands of years of selection, uh, or something like wheat, which is an annual crop, which even these days they're getting several generations per year for breeding. So it's a relatively unselected crop. So we looked at the diversity that's in the wild and looked at the diversity that's in the Hawaiian germplasm. And that's particularly because the Hawaiian germplasm is the predominant germplasm that's used in production in the world. I estimate about 70% of the world's production is from Hawaiian uh, germplasm that was developed in Hawaii. Um, that's probably a pretty rubbery figure. But... Um, all of that germplasm, the genetic diversity in that germplasm traces back to a single population just to the southwest of Gympie. So this is an indicator that, and then, you know, if we look at the diversity that is in the wild from the samples that we took, um, there's quite a lot more diversity than that. So that suggests that at least from the main orchards that are, uh, that, um, are producing macadamias, they do have a very low genetic diversity, they may not be adapted to some of those uh, environments that are outside that small range. So, so we're kind of in a situation where the macadamias are grown where the, where the plants are suited to, but those plants are selected to be suited to those areas. That's a reasonable circular argument. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was sort of yeah. sort of trapped in a loop there. Yeah. So, so is there potential for for looking to maybe back looking to the wild population to get um, more diversity and possibly expand the range where macadamias are successful as a commercial crop? Another good good question. Certainly, there is other uh, other germplasm of macadamia that has been taken to different environments. So. There was a small, relatively cottage industry, Ornia, and that was based on germplasm from a species called Macadamia tetraphylla, and that's from northern New South Wales. So Gympie is about 300 kilometres north of the border of, of New South Wales, uh, where the material that went to Hawaii was taken from. Uh, but there was some, some germ um, plants or, or some seed there were some seed that was taken to Southern California and they were found to be more adapted to that environment. And also the South African industry, which produces about 30% of the world production, that's fairly founded on... Um, that's predominantly founded on hybrids between Macadamia tetraphylla, which is from northern New South Wales, Macadamia integrifolia, which is basically north of Brisbane. There's also an interesting discovery in the last uh, European uh, discovery by Europeans 
uh, because certainly I'm sure the Indigenous people were aware of it, um, of a, a, another species of macadamia that's about uh, 300 kilometres north of Gympie, so probably about 500 kilometres north of Brisbane. And that is a species called macadamia jansenii, and that was first uh, found in the wild by Europeans uh, in the uh, 1980s, I believe. And there's only about um, 30... Well, there were only about 30 individuals in the wild known, but there's now another population that's about 60. But they're quite separated from the rest of macadamia. So everything else of macadamia grows from about uh, 300 kilometres north of Brisbane to about 200 kilometres south of Brisbane. So this species, Jansenii, macadamia Jansenii, is quite separate from the rest of macadamia germplasm and I guess there's an, there's an interest there is does that hold some diversity that we can develop new varieties of macadamia that are better adapted to warmer environments but, and in the same context adapted to the new environments that are going to occur through climate change. So there's, there's some uh, possibility of even hybridising these three species potentially to get uh, new commercial varieties that are suited to different areas um as far as that goes in in commercial plantations they're very uh genetically uniform in a plantation because they are are they propagated um vegetatively they're grafted plants certainly yeah so macadamia is a grafted plant so it's a grafted sign onto a seedling rootstock so that that does make orchards fairly uh genetically homogeneous the only small positive with macadamia is because it's relatively undeveloped there's a lot of varieties that are quite suitable so most orchards probably have between four and eight varieties within the orchard uh, a fair number of that are from the hawaiian germplasm which as we've talked about is quite um, narrow but there's other there's other cultivars that have been selected in australia that uh, add a little bit more diversity nevertheless you know four to eight individual unique genotypes there's not a lot of diversity for sure are there actual programs for breeding macadamias or, or searching for improved varieties in this in this industry um, there are there's a breeding program that's funded by the industry and federal and state government that's lo- uh, that's centered in uh, Queensland and that is been going since 1996 and released four varieties for the industry in 2017. Nevertheless, it's an ongoing breeding program. So that's a, a essentially an industry-funded program. There's also a breeding program uh, from an individual grower that, uh, that started up in about the 1970s, again in southeast Queensland, and that's been quite successful in producing productive varieties as well. Um, overseas, there's not... Um, a lot of activities, some activities starting in China in um, producing uh, improved germplasm, particularly adapted for the Chinese environments. Uh, and there's also, my understanding, there's also discussion in South Africa of starting up breeding programs there. Well, it sounds like uh, it, it, we're, we're sort of catching up on, on things we should have been ahead of the game on for a long time, but it's good to hear that uh, Australian researchers are uh, 
of, of taking the ball back and starting to push ahead. And maybe in the future we can be the majority exporter of macadamias uh, in the world. Thanks for joining us uh, on Lost in Science. Um, Dr. Craig Hardner from the University of Queensland. Um, it's really interesting to hear about your work and uh, good luck with uh, future research. Thanks very much, Stuart. Thanks for your interest. Pleasure. Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and today I'm talking about uh, theoretical physicist Murray Gell-Mann. He um, he died recently, on the 24th of May this year, aged 89 years. So I thought good time to to look back at him and particularly what he did, because he is a physicist who gave us quarks. So I thought it's good to talk about what are quarks and what they do. How do quarks work? How do quarks work? Quarks work. Yes. <laughs> We'll, we'll get on the pronunciation because that is an issue, a long-standing issue with quarks or quarks. Yeah. I, I, I was talking to someone the other day about a TV show I remember from being a child called Quark. I always thought it was called Quark, but the, it may be called Quark, but it was about a space garbage collector. I loved that show. Yeah, I loved it was that great. Show, yeah. It was a great show. But maybe that's, you know, that's probably thrown everyone off because I'm pretty sure they pronounced that wrong the whole way through. Look, there are differences of opinion. I mean, ask, <laughs> ask the GIF guy or the GIF guy what well, he thinks. Yeah, yeah, because graphics. We all do graphics, yeah. right? Anyway, but before we get to that, like, cast your mind back to the mid-20th century. At this time, particle physics was getting rather complicated. So we knew what atoms were made out of. They're, you know, they're made out of electrons, protons, and neutrons. Uh, they'd also been theorized that there were neutrinos required to um, balance the equations in radioactive decay. Um, and oh, okay, and also all these particles have antiparticles. But aside from that, that's all we really need, okay, to mm-hmm. make up the universe. Yeah. But then suddenly they started finding all these new particles. These are often showing up in cosmic rays, like cosmic rays of high energy will hit the atmosphere, and there'll be a shower of particles come down. Uh, and the laboratory experiments as well. There are hundreds of new particles showing up, way more than we needed to make the universe as we understood it. So they were just measuring these particles and going, well, what are the, where are they coming from and what do they do? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. What, 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 how do they all fit together? Why yeah. are there so many of them? They called it the particle zoo because there was all these weird and wacky particles turning up. Right. And um, Murray Gell-Mann is one of the people who helped make sense out of it. Uh, he started um, by identifying that some of them that had unusual, some of these unusual particles, he identified they had a property that he called strangeness. 
Because he was that kind of guy. He had a, did he have any good reason for calling it strangeness? Well, it was strange. Or? They lasted longer than they expected. Oh, like, okay. They so they didn't decay quickly or anything. They were just yeah, sort of hanging around. They were a bit strange. Yeah. He had a bit of a way with words, Murray Gellman. So, okay, he, he loved languages all his life. Uh, Murray Gellman, he was born in New York. He was the son of Jewish immigrants, Pauline Reichstein and Arthur Gellman. Um, his, his name has a hyphen, G-E-L-L hyphen M-A-N-N. His father added the hyphen when he came to America. Um, to try and, I guess, make it less foreign, I suppose. Um, but Murray Gellman, um, who liked to joke around, once uh, told people that the name was actually from Scotland, from where the rivers Gell and Man meet. And that's where it came from. So he just made that up. He made that up, yep. <laughs> he was something of a child prodigy. And when he went to university, he wanted to study something like archaeology, but, and his father wanted him to study engineering. So physics was the compromise that they came up with. I guess, you know, I guess physics is the archaeology of the universe figuring out how things work, and they've been around for a really long time. It is a little bit, but the point is that Murray Gellman, he had kind of a bit of an interesting, an interest in lots of different areas. Mm-hmm. So anyway, he found a way to organise these, these many particles into groups of eight and ten, um, mostly the groups of eight, and so he dubbed his scheme the Eightfold Way, naming it after the Eightfold Path to Enlightenment from Buddhism. Right. That was meant to be just kind of a bit of a joke on his part. Um, he later said he regretted it because people assumed there was some sort of mystic connection going on there, but he didn't mean that. And they still that. do. And they still do. Yeah. Um, choose your words carefully. But he eventually figured out that this arrangement made sense if these particles were based on a symmetry that's called the Special Unitary Group 3 or... SU3. It's really hard to explain what SU3 means. There is a smaller version called SU2, which essentially corresponds to rotations in three dimensions. So SU3 is kind of a bigger bit of it. But the fundamental components of it would be like three bits need to make up the smallest um, element of it. So essentially these particles that give you this eight, eight-fold symmetry had there were three, um, three smaller particles making them up. So they they were kind of trying to look for some sort of systematic way yeah. that these things were putting that they think these things were put together in like sort of similar to the periodic table or something like that where you yeah. can just say oh well if there's that many of this kind of thing it's going to be yeah something like that result x kind of thing so they had these three different kinds of smaller particles yeah. that would have to fit together to make give you all these all these other many ones that had been found in the particle zoo now he called them quarks now, he says he came up with the... When we came back to the pronunciation, he came up with the sound first. He liked the, sound, the name Quark. And then he needed a way to justify it. And he found a reference in James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, which is the line, three quarks for muster mark, which makes you think it should be pronounced quark, and most people do think it should be pronounced quark. But he had this weird, complicated justification why it could still be pronounced quark, even though it looks like it's meant to rhyme with the word mark. He was that kind of guy. Um, he didn't refer to the cheese, strangely enough, that's also called quark. But anyway. Is it quark or quark? I think it's quark. Cheese. Yeah. Okay. Many physicists pronounce the particles quark, though. So either was acceptable as far as I'm concerned. Okay. They were also, interestingly, these particles also independently proposed by another physicist, George Zweig. He called them aces. So it was nowhere near as exciting a word. But this, even so, they took a while to accept the idea of quarks or quarks, whatever you have them, or aces, whatever you want to call them. Because one of the reasons is because to have, say, three of them making up something like a proton, which has a positive charge, you need to have like a fraction of the charge of a proton on each of them. So it turns oh, out yeah, that there's, okay. 
Yeah, though it's it's quite um, it gets quite complicated. So it sounded a bit unlikely. But then there was experimental evidence for them. They um, they had high energy experiments to probe the structure of protons and show that they indeed they were made out of these smaller particles. Um, they had a working title of partons, so it's another name for quarks is is partons. But um, yeah, eventually people accepted. Yeah, these are the quarks that um, Gilman was talking about. Just to avoid confusing with Dolly Parton. That's right. Right. So the way it works is that protons and neutrons are made out of two types of quarks. They're up and down quarks. And so protons are two ups and a down, and neutrons are two downs and an up. The strange particles, that, that the strangeness that um, in certain particles that he came up with, that required another type of quark called a strange quark. Sorry, pronunciation again. Some other physicists very quickly realised that there would need to be a companion to the strange quark, so they called that the charm quark. And charmed particles were observed experimentally in 1974, so the predictions sort of worked out. Probably, but, probably inspired the Hawkwind album Quark Strangeness and Charm, which came out in the 70s. I would imagine so, yes. <laughs> So the quarks are stuck together with a force that is based on this SU3 symmetry, and there's particles that mediate the force that you know carry the force between the the quarks, and these particles are called gluons. Another clever word that um, Gelman came up with. Um, and this force is so this is a strong nuclear force. It's so strong that you normally can never have a free quark on their own. To free them, you really need to have very high energies to look deep inside the nucleus. So they're only free at very high energies at very small scales deep inside the nucleus. So they're not really free in that sense. It's all a bit strange. It's mm. called asymptotic freedom. It's a mathematical thing. So you have your up and down, charmed and strange. Then eventually they, um, they figured out there would be bottom and top quarks. Um, the bottom quark was discovered in 1977, and the top quark wasn't discovered until 1995. You said hark back to the middle of the... 20th century, so it took them a really long time to figure this stuff out. Totally. And when I first started studying physics, the top quark hadn't been discovered yet, and there was this kind of worry that people had, what if it doesn't actually exist, then the whole system won't make sense. Fortunately, it did turn out to exist, but it was that kind of thing of, well, what if this thing isn't real? It's just Mm. very, very heavy. That was the reason why it was hard to find. So Gilman, he won a Nobel Prize in 1969 for all of this work. Of course, he worked on other things other than physics. Um, He founded a complexity institute, and eventually, which eventually began a project on the evolution of human languages. Um, he was a keen bird watcher as well, and he won awards for environmental projects. But according to Wikipedia, because that's where I do a lot of my research, <laughs> um, another thing that he has named after that he came up with was he and author Michael Crichton came up with something called the Gelman amnesia effect. Mm-hmm. Now, this is where, say, you're reading a newspaper and there's an article on something that you're an expert in. In his case, it would be physics, and you read it and you go, like, this is rubbish. They've got this all wrong. They go, they're all you know, backwards. Um, they don't understand what they're talking about. These people know nothing about physics. And so you get a oh, you shake your head and shake your fist. Then you turn the page and keep reading the newspaper as if the rest of it is completely accurate. And you forget that they had got that other article completely wrong. Oh, so it's a way of overestimating the reliability of newspapers. Essentially. Even though you know for a fact that they yeah. get things massively wrong. When you read something you know about, you go, oh, that's all wrong. But you assume that they're right about everything else. Mm, that's um, an interesting uh, proposition. It is an interesting proposition. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, Gelman, he was a bit of a smart ass, but he was genuinely smart. Um, I mean, pretty much gave us the deepest understanding we have of the structure of the universe that's reliable. So yeah, that's a pretty, um, pretty smart achievement. So Valet yeah. Murray Gelman.
And that's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Thank you so much for sticking with us today. And thank you very much to Craig Hardner for chatting all about macadamia nuts. Lost in Science is recorded in the studios of 3CR and broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Please get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us at lostinsightgmail.com. You can find us on Twitter. We are Lost in Science 1. Or find us on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or maybe you just want to tune in again next week when Stu, Claire and Chris get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.